May I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show.
right now. I think we got the technical difficulties out of the way. I think we do. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to another episode of Straight Talk with Nita Mar. It's Six Man Dean Geronimo, and as always, from NJ to NC, I'm in the studio now with my right-hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Well, you know, we're keeping busy as always, got all kinds of things going on. So I was actually on conversations earlier with folks that are involved in different forms of the entertainment industry. I was talking to a friend of mine on one of our other programs about their involvement in the fashion industry. So they've been in the fashion industry for a number of years. So I had a conversation with them, learning about some of their thoughts about current trends in the industry and apparently their love even of thrift stores and things of that nature. So that was a very interesting conversation that I had. And then I also talked to uh, some other folks that were involved in like everything from e-commerce to doing business in the business community of London. So, like I said, I'm always trying to learn about the international world, so I have now got a feel for the unions and other things that exist in other parts of the globe. So I did have a conversation right. with uh, my friend Ben Coates. So he was uh, part of a uh, media company and also flies drone planes over there in London. So had a chance to talk to him and learn more about what they're doing. So that was definitely um, a great conversation and thoroughly enjoyed uh, having his involvement. And then Veronica James joined us as well. And she is a person that is all about e-commerce and teaching people how to use Shopify and other things along those lines. So definitely just great having some very powerful conversations. And, of course, the rest of the week has been relatively mild. You know, folks are still trying to maintain, get some money going, and try to survive. That's what we're all in the middle of with this Mm -hmm. pandemic that we're all part of and everything. So, you know, it's that day-to-day survival. We do have, you know, the Democrats had their fund last week, and this week it's time for the Republicans. So we've got that happening here in North Carolina. So I understand that that person that called 1600 home right now and hopefully not for that much longer, that he's over there hanging out throughout North Carolina, you know, causing trouble. As I was talking to another friend of mine about and we were trying to think if we had ever heard of this. And maybe you as another person can tell me if you've heard of this, but apparently every day of the convention, the person currently in the office is going to speak. And I don't ever remember hearing of that ever happened before. So this is something new when you've got somebody that's going to be speaking all the time and they're going to be the only one speaking. So like I said, I never heard of that happening. So I don't know if that's something that's the norm for you or something that you know about history-wise, but I don't ever recall a president that spoke every day. They might have spoken maybe more than one day, but not every day. But apparently, in the current person in the office, they want to talk to us every day of the week while the convention is going on. Nobody wants to hear him all week, man. Like, (laughs) nobody cares. That's why you got to speak all week, because it's it's something inside of you that says you're not going to make it. You know what I mean? And they showed a clip on the news. The guy, the people that were there, it was probably about 30 of them. They claimed they social distancing or whatever. But they were chanting four more years. And he was saying 12 more years. And I was like, dude, yeah, you know what? You can get 12 years if you take one of those trips on your space force and go to another <laughs> planet. You could be president forever. So you know what? Get on the, get on the uh, shuttle. Going out there to Uranus because you're an ass, <laughs> and you know what? You can be the ruler of that planet for life. We will not bother you. We won't even call to check on you. 
we'll just be so happy that you're gone. And then some things that have been wrecked can be rectified. You know what I mean? So, hey, man, uh, I, it's, you know. <laughs> I certainly agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more at everything because I'm sitting there going like 12 more years. No, I'm not even trying to give him eight, which would be two terms. And he's talking about having some folks that are talking 12 more years. But, you know, these are some of the same folks because I saw a survey recently. And the survey said that the majority of Republicans, and I forgot which of the various poll networks it was, but the majority of Republicans say that the amount of life that has been lost is acceptable. So, like I said, the, the Democrats didn't feel that way. It was actually the majority, overwhelmingly, in the Democrats that felt that that was totally unacceptable. And it was a, um, you know, also similar numbers, even though there was a little bit more moderation with it from the independents. Uh, like I said, maybe it might have been 10 to 90 for the, um, and that's not exact figures because I don't have it pulled up, but let's just say it was 10 to 90 right. for the Democrats. And it was like, let's say, 30 or 25 to 75 or 80 for the um and I know that math didn't come out right, but you get the idea. But for the uh, right. independents, but the but the Republicans, and I forgot the numbers. I don't think it was an overwhelming majority. It wasn't like ninety to hundred or something like that. It might have been more like sixty-five to forty, or um, sixty-five to thirty-five, or sixty to forty, or something like that. But just the fact that this party, and I, I'm talking about that ones that call themselves Republicans, could think that any amount of death would be acceptable was startling to me. Like I said, when I saw that and it came across one of my news feeds, I'm sitting there going like, all I could do was just shake my head. That's all I could do was just shake my head because I'm going like, most people that I know in society would say on anything that is a tragedy, whether that's um, what we're going through with the pandemic, whether that's a hurricane, whether that's whatever, most people that I know are trying to uh, limit the amount of death, and they are definitely not saying that it is acceptable. So I don't know where you get these numbers that you feel that it's acceptable unless it's some sort of um, ulterior motive that we don't understand or know about. And there are some people with conspiracy theories that might think that that is the case. But that being said, the fact that they would just be bold enough to say that out in the brazen public totally threw me off. When have you ever known the 1% to give a damn about the 99. So what they said isn't too far off of regular thought patterns because what they do is acceptable for them to benefit themselves. So they're not worried about if someone is actually suffering from this or if someone actually, you know, is harmed. They don't care about any of that stuff, man. They have you know, for them, they like, man, we have money. And for them, yeah. money is the, the answer for everything. They have a lot of it. So they can say, you know what, well, it's no big deal. We don't really care. Because they don't. Yeah. They you don't know. care. You're so right about that. And I'm going to give the exact numbers because I did pull it up and everything. But according to this was a CBS poll, by the way, and it was a national survey conducted by CBS News and the pollster YouGov. And it was released yesterday. And it says that 57% of Republicans says that the number of the U.S. deaths from the pandemic has been acceptable. So it's 57 to 43 for the Republicans. And I was pretty close to my guess for the Democrats. It was like 90 to 10 for the uh 
Democrats, meaning 10 thought that it was acceptable, 90% thought it was not acceptable. And for the independents, it was 33% that thought it was acceptable and 67% that thought that it was unacceptable. But like I said, just that number of uh, the majority, and that is, like I said, a uh, solid majority in 57 versus 43, to think that that is acceptable, like I said, and we're currently approaching 180,000 deaths. So when 180,000 deaths became acceptable, like I said, I don't get it. I don't want to get it. But like I said, I hear what you're saying, and that makes a lot of sense that that's kind of their attitude and everything. On a more different note, we do know that the wildfires are still raging in uh, parts of Northern California. I've actually got friends and acquaintances that live in California, so my thoughts do go out to them, just like my thoughts go out to those that live in Louisiana and um, the Texas area, because I understand and I have not checked to see which one is a hurricane, which one is a tropical storm, whether they're both of them are hurricanes, whether both of them are tropical storms, but I do know that there is some weather off the coast and it's supposed to be going back to back. And I want to say that it might be hitting Louisiana back to back. So it is two storms. The last time I checked, they were heading in that path, and they might be hitting the same state back to back. So I think at one time I thought it was going to be Houston on one side and Louisiana on the other, kind of what happened with um, Katrina way back when. But this time it looks like it could be heading for the same state in the same direction. At least that's the last time that I checked, and I need to check on that again. So definitely for those that are going through not just what's going on with the pandemic, but other kinds of natural disasters, our thoughts do go out to them and our uh, prayers and our wishes that they are able to weather this storm as well is uh, met with, uh, you know, some very positive thoughts from all of our listeners as well as just the world out there in general. So we do have that going on. And then on another note, I did see that Jerry Falwell has said that he might be stepping down from Liberty. Oh, he did. Because, um, that, he, did. he did step down. Okay, so he stepped down. Yeah. So you know those things. Uh, I guess those um, snake oil salesmen are running out of customers. I guess, and uh, you know he stepped down. That uh, who was it? Pastor John Gray is back in the news. You know. More cheating allegations, so I guess he didn't learn from the first time when he spent the church's money and bought his wife that uh nice old expensive car. I guess he figured that would shut her up for a little bit so he could go back to doing what he was doing. But you know, like <laughs> all of that stuff, man, every road has a stop sign, and some people blow through the stop sign and crash into the brick wall. And you know, right now they're crashing, man, they're crashing. Yep, and crashing left and right, and also crashing over some silly things. Like, I'm still trying to figure out why we're having issues with the post office because somebody thinks that the election is going to be rigged if it's not done in his way. Actually, I think he might be trying to rig the election, but that's just my thoughts on it and everything. So you're going to basically stop folks from doing absentee voting and other ways of getting their vote out there. So, like I said, um, he's got a number of his friends in very important positions, whether that's folks in the post office, whether that's folks in a number of other kind of divisions of the government and these are friends that are basically you know at his beck and call even William Barr with his uh, being in charge of the Justice Department and things of that nature so I guess if you've got that kind of like power and you want to exercise it that's what he's doing he's putting his cronies into these positions and they're just basically doing his marching orders and like I said you get crazy things like folks chanting 12 more years and him speaking four times in a convention and a number of other crazy things that are happening with what's going on in society so like I said, we just got folks that are doing some very unusual things in these unusual times. But hopefully uh, things will change and we'll see 
a uh, new direction and a more positive direction because I don't know about you but uh, I was actually joking and like I said I'm not trying to wish away life or anything of that nature but I do know some folks that have given some serious consideration to the idea of like trading in 2020 and maybe you know getting it another year like whether that's um, you know call it 2021 or call it 1999 or any year other than 2020 but apparently it was a meme you know what though? what you say the uh, 2020 has been a year of perfect vision, boy. You get to see some things for what they really are. And uh, the wool has been pulled back. So you can actually tell. When people tell you who they are, you know, it was said to believe them. But we didn't. So now in 2020, you're starting to see people for who they are and believing it. Maya Angelou would be very proud that we finally decided that he that warning that she gave so long ago, you know, but it's easy to just repeat but now you, you really get to see who's for you who's not for you and hopefully we'll start to let logic rule over emotion, you know I guess we will Yeah, but, uh, we got somebody to do that huh? I like when we get people to do us. I always thought we got to do us. We yeah, get into a conversation. Wait four minutes. So, what we're gonna do is um, go into one of these ads real quick, and then we're gonna see who's been standing by. It's straight talk with Dean and Mark. The old Renaissance is the new Renaissance, standing on tradition while embracing the spirit of distinction. This is the Harlem Brewing Company. Uniquely crafted beer brewed to deliver a taste, a sound, and a feeling that can only be described in one way, Harlem style. So come and take a trip on the A-Train with our Harlem Sugar Hill Golden Ale and our Harlem Renaissance Whiskey, the neighborhood original. All right, we're back. That was a little quick break, but we are back now. And, uh, Caller, you are now on the line. Welcome to Straight Talk with Dina Mark. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. Hello, everybody. My name is Adila Dr. B. Whitaker, and I am calling in from Atlanta, Georgia. All right. Well, I appreciate you calling in from Atlanta and talking to us about all that you're doing, and I know that you're involved with business consulting and business coaching and things of that nature, but for those that are listening for the first time, tell the folks a little bit about your business, what the business is all about, and kind of some of the things that you're learning even in this new era that we're in, because I know one of the things we talk about here is the you know, impact of uh COVID on business, whether that's business coaching or whether that's just business owners, whether they be small business owners or big business owners. So I'd love to hear some of your perception of that as well. But if you would, just to start everything off, tell folks a little bit about your own background. Absolutely. So I am actually an empowerment coach, and um, I focus mostly on mental health and intimacy. And um, I work I'm the CEO of the Dr. D Effect, where we help women overcome their current situation by empowering them to make a life transformation where they can stand in their purpose and be unstoppable in every aspect of their lives. And so, like I said before, I focus on mental health and intimacy, and um, we try to focus on mental well-being because a lot of people don't like to acknowledge it or like to say it out loud, but most of us are dealing with symptoms of, you know, mental illness, either from generational trauma or childhood trauma 
or current situations and stressors. And I just try to help people unpack that baggage so that they can deal with it and stop allowing it to stifle their growth and keep them from being their best selves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I was curious about is are you finding that more people are having harder times dealing with reality because of everything that we're going in? So are you seeing an increase in business? Because, like I said, I know a number of people are even kind of reexamining themselves, and it's even caused some people to um, rethink their direction, whether that's their direction of their life, whether that's direction of their business, whether that's direction of their personal relationships. But I was wondering how are you finding that the current state of what we're in be that the pandemic that we're in or some of the things that are going on around uh, race and cultural relationships are impacting people? Is it imp- And how is it impacting your work? Absolutely. So it, with 2020, with COVID, and with the current social economic state, um, state of, the, of the world, there has been an, a boom in the need for people to cater to their mental well-being because, you know, we're at home you know, more often with people who we probably didn't see, you know, very often we're spending more time with our loved ones. And so we're seeing a few things. People are having more psychotic breaks. We're having, you know, an increase in um, divorce rates going up because people are, you know, I think someone said earlier that you were able, the wool was being pulled away from people's eyes and you're able to see the people for who they really are. Because before we were able to hide, we were able to mask and kind of camouflage our behavior because we weren't spending all this time with each other. But now we're at, there's nowhere to hide because we're home all of the time. And so there has been an, a real increase and a need for people to take care of their mental, their mental well-being. But the, the downside to everything with COVID is that there's not a financial um, component to support the need there, and so there's not a lot. Uh, there's not enough mental health professionals who are taking, you know, able to take the insurance that is necessary to be able to cater to to people and with everyone losing their jobs and everything. There's not, you know, coverage to take care of your mental health. So there's just there's been a lot of um, facets that come into play when it comes to you know taking care of your mental health in the midst of COVID-19 in the in the state of the world. Um, but it have, I have had an influx of patients and, um, I mean, new clients, and I've had to actually put people on waiting lists because there's, there's a huge need to, you know, pour into ourselves and make sure that we're taking care of ourselves so that we can continue to progress in this new age of 2020. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I remember that when the pandemic first started, that's one of the things that people were theorizing would happen, which is what you mentioned earlier, which is the influx in divorce. I mean, I remember hearing some of the experts, like even some of the medical experts, and they dealt with psychology and dealt with more sociological kind of things, theorizing that they would that we would see an uptick in divorces and probably an uptick in babies being born as well. Because, like you said, a lot of times folks are in the home, so they are rediscovering themselves in that way also. So I was just wondering, is that something with your clients that you are seeing? Because you mentioned the divorce aspect, but are you also seeing an uptick in the relationships uh, that might uh, – create more of the family basis and everything, because I do know that disasters sometimes have created that, whether it was like the old historical disasters that might have happened during the plague era and some of the other historical disasters that we did see an uptick in births in addition to the uptick in divorces. So I just wondered, are you seeing people that are telling you that they are thinking about renewing their vows or thinking about having children or things of that nature that's going on as well? Yes, I've also, you know, I've seen it, the, the scale tip on both sides, 
where people are more open to uh, entering in new relationships. People who were okay with being single are now wanting to couple because, you know, human beings as a whole, we are social creatures and having had been isolated for so long, we get to a point where it's like, you know, I want to be around somebody else. I need to be, be around somebody. And so you, you then start to look at, okay, maybe I can deal with, you know, this that I wasn't, I wasn't willing to put up with before. And so then we get um, new, new, a lot of new relationships and people are finding other ways to pass time, which, you know, leads to intimacy, which I think will, we will have a huge baby boom <laughs> at the end of all of this. We'll see a lot, a lot more kids being born um, as a result of having been home with your spouses. But I've, I have seen a lot of couples, a lot of new couples, a lot of new relationships and I think there's been like this huge thing of like um, online virtual dates that are taking place to help foster and, and cultivate those new relationships. So I think this is a new age where we're having to be more creative and being um, intimate and being around each other so that we can, you know, keep our social, keep our, um, I guess, uh, physical distancing, but be able to be social with one another. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that even with education, that's one of the things that folks have complained about was that we're doing more of this social education in the sense of the virtual education in terms of our students and teachers having to do that kind of way or model of education. But that being said, like you just said earlier, we are social beings, meaning uh, humans in general are social beings. So I'm just wondering sometimes if the teachers are not doing a good enough job of finding out ways to to address the social aspects, even within the virtual world. So I just wonder, as you talk to different folks, particularly those in Atlanta, and maybe even some educators might be among your clients, what kind of advice are you giving them that they um, realize that it's a new world, a new virtual world, but at the same time incorporate some of those social aspects? Because socialization is very important. For example, I know here in North Carolina where I'm at, they actually were letting the freshmen and the sophomores come to Duke University, not so much the juniors and the seniors, but part of the reason that they wanted them to come to the university in that young age was so that they had that college socialization experience. Then, of course, they had additional COVID cases, and now they're going online. So, like I said, but the original theory was let's bring the freshmen and sophomores in so that they can learn socialization that they might not have been getting during their high school years because of what's going on in the world. So. I was just wondering your thoughts on that and what kind of things you're hearing in that relationship, even with your own consulting business. Absolutely. So I, I, I have a professional and a personal opinion about the education system. So like off the top, I think that teachers are amazing and I think that they do the, the best that they can. But when teachers went to school, they did not go to school with preparation to teach virtually. It is very difficult to, you know, maintain the attention span of 20 plus children on a computer screen. I mean, I know my nephew is eight years old and when he's talking on the phone with somebody, you might get five minutes of conversation out of him and then he's putting the phone down and going off to do something else because their, their attention span is not that long. And so I can only imagine, you know, how much work they'll have to put into creating a curriculum that will not only teach the children so that they'll be on par with their grade level academically, but also keep them engaged for um, the standard school school time. And so I, th- I think they're in, you know, they're between a, stuck between a rock and a hard place because they still have mandates to meet, but but it's not an ideal situation to be able to parent them. And so there's you know there's so many 
uh, facets that come into this. You know, there's internet, there's capability, uh, internet capability. If, if, if the child has a computer, there's so there's so many pieces that come into it. But um, I know for myself, when I used to we used to do services in person, so I used to meet with my clients in office. But with, when COVID happened, you know, we immediately went to remote services and we do things online. Now, this was difficult for me because it requires more planning and it requires more creativity to work with someone over, you know, over the computer versus being able to be in face-to-face because you lose out on body language, you lose out on personability, and you lose out on that interpersonal connection. And so you have to be creative in how you interact with another person via Zoom. And so that's what I would just encourage, you know, teachers to do is just to, you know, to continue to be creative and finding ways to keep these children engaged when they're on the computer because there's no way to, like, guarantee that they'll stay, you know, interactive and engaged throughout the entire process. But we're just, we all just have to take that extra 15, 20, 30 minutes to plan out how we can cultivate engagement and creativity within the, um, the Zoom or whatever um, whatever um, way they use to communicate, they have to use that um, time to be creative and be you know think outside of the box so that these children are getting what they need. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I do think that we need to have more folks do that on a regular basis because I also sometimes wonder about what some people are considering Zoom overload and things of that nature because there is a number of folks that are on their computer. I mean, I'm just, I just did three podcasts today, so I'm guilty of it myself just like anybody else. So there is a lot of that kind of conversations where you sometimes feel like Zoom overload. So as one, it does empowerment. How do you get people to use these tools of empowerment because a lot of times the computer and these other things are tools of empowerment in order to in order to create your business or in order to just be empowered in general <clears throat> but how do you use those tools and also have some sort of uh regulation within that because you don't want to get burnt out by it you also don't want to have an addiction to it so like i said when you're talking to folks and you want them to use tools whether that's zoom whether that's whatever the tool might be how do you do a balance of that i think it's, it's all about being intentional and having a level of balance so, you know, I think I think we were all at a point where it's like, you know, if I just had this extra time, if I could be at home, you would feel less busy. But I don't know if I can't speak for anybody else, but I know I have been busier now being at home than I was when I was out in the community because you, you packed that time that you would have been traveling with more meetings, with more with more interviews, with more clients. And so you're 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 busier. And so I I always encourage my clients to just be intentional with their time. If you're booking something, make sure that you're booking it and it's not something that's just going to eat up your time. You're not trying to be busy, but you're trying to be mindful and being intentional with, with how you're spending that time and if it's going to be purposeful and if it's going to fulfill the needs that you have in place. And so um, yeah. when I schedule my Zoom calls, because I have to take the extra time to plan and cultivate um, specific individualized plans for my clients, I try to give myself a longer buffer in between my client meetings so that I'm not over, you know, I'm not burning myself out. And, I, um, I, you know, I work with a lot of helping professionals, and so I encourage them to do something similar. Uh, if you're meeting with a client in the office, you probably would have given yourself a 10 or 15-minute buffer before your next client came in. But because you're on the computer, you know, staring at the computer can strain your eyes. You know, it's, um, you, you're probably at home. you got your kids walking around in front of you. you got to make sure that you're eating. There's a whole bunch of different um, 
additional components than the ones who working from home and being on the computer. So I encourage them to, to allow themselves to take additional time in between clients so that they're not getting burnt out. And then when you're not on the phone with a session, try to, you know, be intentional about if you're on social media or if you're on the computer just, you know, perusing or if you're watching TV, you know, try to go outside, try to exercise, try to walk around, try to get your body moving, to get your blood flowing so that you're not burning yourself out and getting into a rut. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things I noticed that I've just observed is um, because everybody's in the house and everybody's doing the business in the house, so we sometimes neglect some of the other aspects of even our own personal transformation, because I think that we have to have a transformation that involves being um, spiritually grounded, physically grounded, mentally grounded, and I would even argue emotionally grounded. But I do think that sometimes we've become so focused on just maybe one or two aspects of our human transformation as individuals, and that's across genders, across races, across all kinds of divisions that mankind has put out there for themselves. So I just wonder your thoughts on that. Do you think that we have to be purposeful about making time for our mental development and our emotional development and also our spiritual development as we're doing these kind of business transformations and this kind of success coaching that you're such a vital part of? Absolutely. I, I think that taking care of your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being is a full-time job. You know, just like you would go to the dentist if your teeth were hurting, you go to the doctor if you have an ache in your body, you know, you also want to pay attention to what your body is trying to tell you for, you know, when it comes to your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. And especially for, you know, black and brown people, I think that we kind of put those needs on the back burner as it compares to everything else. But that is what fuels us to keep going. If we don't pour into our emotional, mental, and spiritual health, then we're no good to anybody. And and that's really how you get, you know, generational trauma passed on because if we're not dealing with it at, at our generations and we're passing it down to our children, if they don't deal with it, then they pass it down to theirs. And that's why you have a lot of, you know, millennials who are – putting an emphasis on emotional and mental well-being because they're seeing the generational trauma and therapy is becoming more a more acceptable practice. You know, even though it has a, a European um, grounding, it, it's becoming a more acceptable practice into pouring into ourselves and making sure that we're taken care of so that we can continue to battle, you know, everything that we have to face as adults because, you know, it's a lot that we have to deal with. That makes a lot of sense. And another thing that I've noticed just in reading some of your own background and everything is that you seem to be very much about <laughs> encouraging people to be very cognizant of what their identity is and to not deny their identity. So it does seem that you, it's part of your work is making sure that people develop and develop in all those aspects, but also respect the fact that if they are African-American, that they accept their um, that part of their culture. And the same with even some of the members of the LGBT community and some of the other communities of clients that you deal with. So is that a correct statement to say that is part of your life coaching and even some part of the other kind of coaching that you do, that you do try to get people to have an understanding of who they are as people, no matter what that identity is, because of course everybody kind of like has their own self-identities. Absolutely. I, I always try to encourage my my clients to define who they are and don't don't make an agreement with the agree with the def- definition that the world gives you. The world will try to beat you down and break you down and tell you that you are less than 
because that's how they monetize. That's how they thrive. If they're able to make us smaller, then they're able to build them on top of our shoulders. So I try to empower my clients to accept who they are, own who they are, and define who they are for the world so that they can feel more confident and love themselves and they don't need validation from another person. We just have to make a conscious decision to shift our mindset and not make an agreement with these slurs and these negative statements that are put on us by other people who don't know who we are individually. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see where that would definitely work and everything. And the other part of your life coaching is definitely the aspect of intimacy and sex and things of that nature. So I sometimes find that too often folks don't even want to think about that as part of their day-to-day life and things of that nature. So when you're talking to potential clients, how important is it for you to get engaged with them in understanding their nature of intimacy? Because I do think that sometimes because of the nature of business, we sometimes try to um, – distract ourselves from the those important parts of our life. Because I know that even one of the things that I've heard people talk about, and I've even been guilty of talking about it, is that need for space. And sometimes that means that you need space from the individual, and sometimes that means you need space away from their physical touch. So like I said, space conversations can have a lot of different directions depending on what you mean by needing space. So like I said, when you talk to folks about intimacy and you talk about that whole space conversation, what is your take on that and how do you deal with it? Absolutely. So I deal with it from an individual basis. So I feel like every relationship, whether it's um, romantic or personal, is just a mirror of what you put out. And so if you need something, you have to you reflect that from your partner, and you have to verbally communicate that. We have, I have a lot of clients who will come to me, and they'll say that they want to have a more fulfilling and more engaging relationship but they want their partner to do all the work. They don't want to do or, be, you know, give any part of themselves. And in order to have healthy intimacy, there needs to be vulnerability, transparency, and you also need to be willing to, you know, intentionally listen to what your partner has to say. And so usually when my clients come to me as a couple, I talk to them individually first because usually it's an individual component that's negatively impacting the couple as a whole. And so after we're able to get to a, a point where we're able to identify the issue, we're able to get to a place where we're able to be vulnerable, then we can talk about what healthy intimacy looks like for that particular partner. And usually when you're able to be vulnerable, then you can communicate to your partner what it is that you like, what it is that you don't like, what, what, you know, what type of things you might want to try in the bedroom, and intimacy looks different for every single couple because everybody has a different love language. Oh, makes sense. That's see where that would be the case and everything. How important do you think that it is for it to be vulnerable within the whole kind of nature of intimacy and things of that nature? Because I know that you've talked about that in some of your writings and everything, but if you talk to our listeners about how important it is to be vulnerable and to express that vulnerability. I know sometimes, particularly among men, I would argue, and particularly African-American men, we don't always want to show that vulnerability. So just when you talk to couples, how important do you think it is for them to open up and to express their vulnerabilities? Absolutely. So I, I think it's really important if you want to have a thriving relationship to have a level of vulnerability and transparency. Because how how else do you uh, how else are you able to communicate and be open with your partner if you're not willing to be vulnerable? And I think sometimes people people confuse vulnerability with um, weakness. 
and that it, it, it's not weak to be open and be um, and, and receive your partner and to be received by your partner. That's not weakness. That's actually strength because when two people come together, you're stronger. All right, that makes a lot of sense. And coming back, because there's so many questions I've got, that I know that a lot of our listeners are probably also wondering about everything. But I want to come back to something else that we talked about earlier, which is the whole concept of being um, intentionally productive. Because sometimes I think that folks get overly busy and they're not necessarily being intentional in their productivity. And I think the same could even be said about relationships. So I think that I would love to hear you talk about the importance of intentionality is within any of the relationships, whether that's a work relationship, whether that's an emotional, um, physical relationship or anything, because I do think that sometimes we give lip service to intentionality, but we don't necessarily do it the way that it should be done. At least that's my opinion. But I was wondering what your thoughts about, are about being intentional in whatever you're doing. Absolutely. So, so in, intentionality in the way that I encourage it, to my clients is just it's it's a mind state. It's a mind state of doing something on purpose or, or deliberately or, you know, with you're making an agreement with an action. And so I can be busy doing things at home, but if I wasn't intentional with my time, then it was all for naught. And so what I what I try to encourage clients to do is at the beginning of the day make out a can do list. Not a, not a to-do list, but a can-do list, a list of things that you, that you can accomplish that, that are reasonable things that you are able to accomplish throughout that day. And, to do, and so to do that makes me be intentional with my day because I'm saying, okay, I'm planning out my day so that I am not filling it up with clutter, but I am mapping out a plan of success for how my day is going to go so that at the end of my day I can say that I successfully did A, B, and C and so I, I did not waste a day. I did not waste my time. I didn't fill it up with fluff. I did, I did things intentionally because I had a plan, and I was able to visualize how I was going to be successful this day or this week or this month or the year or what have you. Yeah, that would, okay, so I can see where that would work. So you have to have this plan and everything. Now, you, do you think that folks should, as a general rule, because I remember there was a time frame in our life, definitely before COVID, where everybody was trying to do almost like everything planned out. Like, you know, they wanted to have the time of day that they would put the kids to bed and get them off to school and all, all of this. So it was very much of a planned, regimented kind of life and everything. Of course, COVID came along and disrupted all of that, but do you think that that's something that we should try to encourage people to do to like, you know, have a specific hour of the day that maybe you do your exercise or a specific hour of the day that you have devoted in order to be uh, within whatever that relationship time is with your significant other? Or do you think that that's something that we need to continue, which COVID has done for us right now, in my opinion, getting away from, but I do remember where there was a time in our life where a lot of folks were being overly planned in my thoughts, but I was just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of an empowerment tool, whether it's good to be, to have that regimented kind of schedule. Cause I know a number of folks that whether they did the military or whether they've done the more traditional, some of the traditional schools and some of the educational institutions that are very regimented. You know, I would even argue some corporations are very regimented, but I was just wondering as an empowerment uh, tool or some way to kind of empower ourselves, how do you feel about regimentation? Absolutely. So I am a very type A personality. I love structure. But there is a time and place for a structure, and then there's a time and place for flexibility. 
I can start my day with intention and have intention to do all of these, you know, impactful things, but I also need to be flexible that something might come up that will derail me from my progress. And so not, you know, especially now, not to beat myself up if things don't go according to plan. I think it's good to have a guideline. I think it's good to have an outline, but I don't think it makes sense to plan every single hour, every single minute, because life just doesn't work that way. There's so many unexpected occurrences that can take place and that can derail you from from a, um, a such a rigid schedule. And I, I think that in the midst of being intentional with your day, with your time, it's also important to be flexible and allow there to be space where things can be malleable and manipulated when they need to be. Uh, and now I just want to come back to a little bit about your own background. Like I said, I was trying to get a feel for some of the, your thoughts on everything. But for those that are learning about you for the first time and everything, could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this work and what it is about this kind of work that is your passion? Because like I said, I know a number of people, they get involved in one thing or another, whether that's relationship counseling, whether that's being a musician or whatever, and they have a passion for it. So, like, were you the person that was always doing counseling when you were a kid, or was it something that you naturally started doing even as a youth and you got into it later, or is it something that you discovered through your own life or through your own spiritual journey? So how did you get involved in the work that you're doing? And then the next question from that would be, what is the reward of it to you, um, Miss Whitaker and everything. So what is your own personal reward? But how did you first get involved in it? Um, I first got involved, um, like you said, I was that little kid who wanted to be a therapist from yay high to a grasshopper. I um, I used to have my, uh, my little nephew lay down on a couch and I would scribble on paper <laughs> like, what he would what he would say, and I would use like ink blots or whatever like as at a young age. So I always wanted to be a helping professional, and um, even in my friendship circles, I was a person that my friends felt comfortable coming to and divulging, you know, information to and receiving advice and feedback from me. And I've always just kind of been this. Um, individual who wants to help and provide support and guidance to people. And so um, I went, um, I, right, right out of high school, I knew that psychology was what I wanted to study. And I've never deviated from that career track because that's where my heart and my passion is. Um, I found a passion for um, sex therapy at a young age because um, I am the youngest girl of four, and my father did not want his baby girl to have to get pregnant at a young age. My my older sister got pregnant kind of early, so he did not want that for me. And so he taught me um, very specifically about sex um, at, in fifth grade. I don't know if, if other fifth graders had a sex talk with their dad dad at that age, but he told me about you know about the penis and the vagina and what it did and how you can get pregnant and just a very vivid conversation. And he told me all of these things and then he made me write a um, a summary that to give him to make sure that I understood all the information that he gave me. And from that age, I just kind of packed information on top of that because I, it, it intrigued me you know, how the body worked and, and how, you know, and what pleasure was and, and how, you know, children got here. And so I just continued to expound on that knowledge. So when I went to college at the University of Texas at Austin, I had the pleasure of working um, in the um, human sexuality, physiolo- 
physiology lab under Dr. Cindy Messon, and that kind of took off my um, my research experience with human sexuality. And so psychology, mental health, and human sexuality have just always been my passion from there on, and I've just continued to further my education and my experience um, through grad school and through um, additional, you know, research opportunities and lectures and certifications to just continue to stay up on the newest information and how I can best assist my clients and stay as knowledgeable as possible. And what do you think are some of the biggest myths that you've noticed in all of those categories that you study, whether it's uh, regular, um, just normal day of the routine, kind of like psychology or this human sexuality? Because I think that there's probably several myths that people are always still dealing with, even though we're in the 21st century and the year 2020. But I think that there's a lot of mythology out there from the scientific standpoint and even from the psychology standpoint. So as one who's been involved in this for a number of years, what are some of the mythologies that exist out there that still surprise you that they're still existing? Um, as far as mental health is concerned, uh, the biggest myth that I that surprises me that's still out there is that mental health doesn't matter. Um, oftentimes, people will present as though taking care of their mental health is more of a uh, a want than a necessity, and that always surprises me. Like I said, because your mind is what takes care of the rest of your body. And so if you're not taking care of your mind, how do you expect it to take care of you? And, you know, we'll, we will, like I said, we'll go to the dentist and we'll go to the doctor if something hurts, but we won't go to talk to a mental health professional if something is wrong with our, our minds or our emotions. And I think that's what's so scary to me is that there are so many people even still who will, you know, who think that mental health doesn't matter. Um, as far as, human sexuality is concerned, I think that um, a myth that I hear is that sex is not supposed to feel good. And um, I, I have clients who, you know, they, 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 it's okay if it doesn't feel good for them. They want it to feel good for their partner. And sex is supposed to be about pleasure for you and your partner. And so I, I, I think that it's interesting that even now in today's age, where sex is such a widely discussed converse, uh, widely discussed topic that people still believe that they don't have the right to be to experience pleasure during um, a physically intimate act with their partner. I think that um, that's something that you know needs to be addressed on a wider scale. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that we need to address that. And I want to come back to one of those, and we come back to both of them, but particularly with the way that we treat psychology within the brown and black community and everything. And I was wondering if you could speak to that more, because I do think that sometimes folks are afraid to go to their therapist or even acknowledge that they have a therapist. So I was wondering if you could talk about how sometimes we have, as a people, have had this very negative stereotype about even dealing with our um psychology and dealing with our mental health and things of that nature. So I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit more about that and how that plays into some of the things that are going on in our society. I would even argue that it might even play into some of the things that we're seeing that are evolving around Black Lives Matter and some of the other things that are very much a part of our current dialogue of what's going on. But I was just wondering your take on it. Absolutely. Well, my my take on mental health, especially in you know in the black community, as a black woman, I 
distinctly remember, you know, people saying what stays in the house stays in the house. You know, like you don't you don't tell take your business outside of these four walls essentially. And I think that's something that a lot of people of color can relate to is being told to, you know, keep quiet. And then then you have like traumatic experiences that are, you know, perpetualized by the family. You know, when someone is molested by their uncle and the whole family knows about it, they will, you know, try to hush, try to keep it hush, hush. They won't say anything. If a child has a, a, a baby out of wedlock or gets pregnant very early, then the parents will take it on, but they won't say anything to anybody else or they'll, you know, try to try to keep it hush like it's, like it's something to be um, ashamed of. But really, it just, it requires a conversation. But like I said, I think that because therapy is rooted in like a Eurocentric um, modality, black people don't think that it's for them. They think, you know, oh, black people don't go to therapy, we don't talk about our problems, we keep things to ourselves. But I think that's why we have so much generational damage because we don't address our feelings, we don't address our issues, we keep them we keep them closed in and, we, and they fester and turn into anger and resentment and avoidance and then we're we're left with these emotional scars that no one can heal heal from or heal. So I I think that as as a whole, I think that the the um, assumption that mental health is not for us, I think that we need to just completely get rid of that because we can do so much good once we're able to heal those those wounds. And um, I'm not sure if you've heard of, like, post-traumatic slave syndrome. The term coined by um, Dr. Joy DeGruy, where she talked about how, um, you know, because of the years of slavery, black people are still, you know, we're, we're still facing the trauma from, from years of torment and mistreatment and abuse and psychological trauma. And so we're still impacted by those things even today. And so, so we we need an outlet. We need a healthy outlet, and that's why there are so many black and brown therapists because we need the help. Yep. And are we seeing more black and brown therapists that are going into the field? Because I wasn't sure what the nature of of that business. Because I know sometimes we were not seeing necessarily in some medical fields enough representation. So are you seeing that we are seeing an increase in therapists that are black and brown or some of the other ethnic minorities? Are we seeing that kind of increase on a regular basis or is this something that still needs to be worked on? Because I know there are a number of industries, I would even argue the media industry, that needs to do a little bit better job of having representation. But how is the industry in terms of psychology and mental health doing in terms of looking like the rest of society? Absolutely. So I don't think that there are enough black and brown therapists. We absolutely need more. Um, but in I, I, the master's program I went to, there was a cohort of 20 black women in my cohort alone. There were other cohorts there, but in my cohort alone, there were 20 black women in my cohort who were um, they're getting their master's in marriage and family therapy with a specialization in African-American family studies. So we specifically wanted to work with African-Americans, you know, in, in the field of mental health. And that particular program um, ha- has 
you know, a lot of children, or a lot of children, a lot of students who apply and matriculate through that program every year. And so there, there is absolutely the education process that's out there to um, support more black and brown therapists. It's just, I guess I would like to see more of us, and I would also like to see more black male therapists. There are some out there, but there are definitely not enough. We need more. Well, so we need more black male therapists and everything of that nature. So why do you think that there aren't enough of us out there? So why do you think that do you think there's a field within the medical profession that isn't that doesn't have that same kind of um, appeal as say being a heart surgeon or some of the other surg- um, medical fields that exist? So why do you think that there aren't enough of uh, our representation in the field? I, I, I definitely think it's not one of those professions that get a lot of credit. You know, it's it's not a profession like you said, like a heart surgeon or um, a doctor or a teacher or um, I'm just trying to think of like an engineer or a, you know or going to school for business. A lot of my black friends went to school to study business or science when I was in school. I think I was out of my friendship group. I think I might have been the only liberal arts major out of my friendship group, and it's just it's just not a widely accepted or notarized profession to go into because it does it doesn't proceed to have a high financial turnaround. In order to be financially successful in the mental health realm, you have to you have to want to hustle number one, and then you have to have um, multiple different streams. You have to be a researcher and a teacher and a therapist and a supervisor. There are you know there are, you have to do multiple things in order to have the type of living that you want versus if you were to go to school for marketing, you'd probably come out of your bachelor's degree with, you know, a $70,000, $80,000 paying job versus if you come out with a psychology degree, you might come out with a $45,000, $50,000 paying job. Wow. So, yeah, that definitely would be a pay decrease for those that are thinking of the more advanced kind of pay that might exist within the medical profession, because I know some people are thinking that as soon as they get out, they're going to have those big paying jobs. But as I know from, I don't have that many doctor friends, I have a few doctor friends, but I have plenty of friends that fall in that legal profession, be that lawyers, be that police officers, be that whatever. And they have that same kind of thing where I think some people expect that as soon as they get out, they're going to be making those big dollars and they, they know what I know. It's that it doesn't happen that fast. I mean, yeah, you can make that money, but most of us are not going to make it immediately out of school. We've got to have some sort of uh, progression in order to get to the big thing in jobs. So I do think sometimes folks are looking for those glamorous jobs, and they may not think of psychology or even sex therapy or things of that nature as a glamorous job. Because when I even come coming back to the sex therapy part, even when I think about that, oftentimes it's about the um, – the big stars, the folks that have made a living in it and that have kind of like become pop heroes, whether that's being Dr. Ruth, being um, um, Masters and uh, trying to remember the other name, the ones that did the big study and everything. But those are kind of like those Mm -hmm. pop stars that exist within it. And I sometimes wonder if we don't get enough people that think about the importance of it just to -to day-to-day life. So when you're talking to people and you're trying to think about them as potential clients, how do you try to get them to understand that this is something that most of us probably, whether you're single, whether you're in a marriage relationship or whatever, that these are services that might be beneficial to a potential client. So on both the psychology and the sex therapy work, how do you go about 
um, cultivating and developing these people in order to get the work done? Um, I that's a good question. I not, I don't know how to say it to sound with a modest response, but I don't try to sell people on the service that I offer because if if you're coming to me. Uh, the the difference between me and a therapist is that a therapist wants to process with you so that you get to a point where you want to make a change. I am a, a coach, and so you come to me when you're ready to make the change, and I help you facilitate that change and that transformation in your life. I'm not here to process why you need the change. That's what a therapist is for. I'm here to help you implement that change and get results. So when a client or when a potential client comes to me, it's because they're ready to transform their lives. They see that the way that they're living or the, their current situation is no longer serving them, and they want different results. And that that is where, you know, where the Dr. D effect comes into place because the effect that I can give you is empowerment, and that empowerment tr- helps you transform so that you can be the person that you want to be in your life. So, I guess to answer your question, how I prepare them to to work with me is just, you know, by asking them if they're ready to make a commitment to transform because I take them through a very um, rigorous program where we undergo undergo a life transformation because sometimes these these people have been doing um, a living a certain type of lifestyle or doing something for decades, and they want me to come into their lives and help them change it. And anytime you're trying to change a habit, that's a lot of work. You know, you have to put in a lot of a lot of time and energy to shift your mindset and to implement to to change stop a habit from forming, implement a new practice, and then put that practice into place that is effective for your life. And so that is a process that, that we go through with me as their coach. And so I'm pushing them, I'm encouraging them, I'm challenging them, I'm stretching them so that they can come out better than they came in when they started working with me. So just trying to help them develop a better understanding of who they are as individuals, whatever that is that they're trying to improve within their life, unlike some of the folks that might be trying to get them to change a lifestyle because for whatever reasons they think that their lifestyle is not appropriate because as you were saying that I was thinking that your approach seems to be totally the opposite of what some people would call conversion therapy which is kind of like this whole attitude of if you're in one form of lifestyle or another but that the church or whatever organization thinks that that lifestyle isn't right that they're going to try to change it whereas it seems like you're trying to meet them as the expression goes and I know it's somewhat of a cliche you're trying to meet the people where they're at so like I said if they're into um whatever their um, inclination might be, whether that's the swinging lifestyle or whether that's whatever, but you're trying to meet them where they're at in order to have a better understanding of why they who, why they are who they are versus trying to change them in one form or fashion or another. Is that a correct way of describing the way that the, um, your effect works and the way of your philosophy of doing this kind of work or am I kind of way off base? No, that that's exactly it. Because like I, like you said, all, all of my all of my coaching is tailored specifically to my clients' needs because each person needs something individual. And so, 
I, my my coaching modality is the same, but my uh, my packages are my, my sorry my package is the same, but the modality is shifted based on the need of the client. So the client comes to me and says, Doctor D, this is what I want to improve on. This is what I want to shift. This is how I want to transform. This is where I am. This is where I want to be. And then I help them map out their effective plan of success to get them from point A to point B. Because I'm imagining, as you were saying this, that part of what you're doing, and this might be an empowerment tool, is you're trying to get them to uh, be um, comfortable with where they are. Because I know that sometimes, too often, in certain societies within the, definitely within the sexuality realm, people are ashamed of whatever that lifestyle may be, and therefore they try to deny it, whether that's folks that might be in the LGBT community, whether that's folks that might be in the swinging community, whether that's folks that might be in whatever their um, fetishes are. But I do think that sometimes they are, for whatever reason, it might be societal, that they have shame around those issues, and therefore they don't necessarily see it as a tool of empowerment, whereas you're basically, from what I'm hearing, are saying that, you know, if that's who you are, don't try to deny that's who you are and let's work with it and you to have a healthy relationship in whatever that aspect of your life is or whatever that fetish might be that you might have, whether that's a foot fetish or it might be something even more severe than that. But it seems like you're trying to get people to actually embrace who they are. Absolutely. That that is the like my one of my premises is self acceptance. Right. No, go ahead. I want to hear more. No, I want to hear what you had to say about self acceptance. I would like to hear more about that. Well, because I, I, as a person who has a big personality, and this is why this. I think you asked me earlier. You know, why is this so? What's so rewarding about this? for me is that I I have been where my clients are and I have overcome similar situations. I am a big personality individual and I, I have lived life where people have tried to make me smaller so that they can feel more competent, more confident and, and feel feel empowered by minimizing my life. And I, I've gotten to you know, I got to a place, you know, earlier on in my life where I didn't care what people people said thought about me because I, I I couldn't afford to. My dreams and my goals are bigger than their thoughts and their opinions that are about me, and so I could not afford to make an agreement with the naysayers. I, I had so many people, you know, try to discredit me. Even people who were put in places to educate me, try to make me smaller, and so that's something I try to you know offer to my clients is that. Anything that I'm encouraging or pushing you to do is not is, is something. It's not something that I wouldn't do or I have not done myself, because I know that the world works in a way where, you know, they want to beat people want to beat people people down. I don't know why society is that way, but that's that's just how it works. People want to make other people smaller because it makes them feel better, and so, you know, we just have to accept who we are and what we are and know that there is nobody else in the world that's like us, and that's our superpower. And so once we own and accept our superpower, then we can be everything that we aspire to be. And it's all about making an agreement with yourself that you are unstoppable. Yeah, I can definitely see that and have to have that kind of unstoppable attitude, kind of almost like to borrow from the Black Panther movement, almost like that Wakanda moment where you're realizing that you are – 
claiming who you are in terms of your greatness. I think that's one of the things that you've been talking about is the way that we can all claim our greatness and things of that nature. Unfortunately, though, and I was just wondering your take on this, there are societal elements out there that are very much about belittling folks. I know part of what you do is you empower particularly women. And, I mean, there are definitely folks in positions of power throughout government, throughout Hollywood, throughout sports, throughout whatever, that are doing opposite things of that. They're definitely about belittling the women. They're definitely even about taking advantage of the women and things of that nature. I've seen that a number of folks that are even now faith and society is catching up with them, um, whether that's like the um, – Harvey, uh, and I can't think of Harvey's last name, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, or I would even argue the Trumps of the world, um, and some other kinds of folks like that and everything. But I do kind of, or the Jerry Falwells of the world, but I was just wondering, do you think that we're going to see any kind of improvement where we're going to have better relationships, even among, like, the way that we treat um, women in general? Because I think that we are still seeing a lot of societies that's having a very... Um, kind of patriarchal and definitely not just a standard patriarchal because, I mean, many societies can either be patriarchal or uh, um, matricial, um, and they can definitely follow either one of those patterns. But unfortunately, in the West, it's very much of that severe uh, patriarchal kind of society, and I don't know that we've gotten away from it yet. I mean, I think our young folks are trying to get us away from it, but I was just wondering your take on that as to how we can get away from this and encourage some of the growth that we saw with the Me Too movement. But I was just wondering your thoughts on that as the ways we can actually do a better job of appreciation, appreciating everybody, no matter what their gender is, no matter what their orientation is, no matter what their skin color is, but still have appreciation for our diversity and appreciation of our different cultures and not be trying to change people that don't necessarily want to be changed. Right. Um, when you say don't change people who don't want to be changed, are you talking about the um, oppressors or are you talking about people in general? People in general, not the oppressors. The oppressors okay. we need to change. Right. <laughs> so um, I guess regarding women's rights and women, you know, women's ability to be able to show up and be seen in spaces, right? You, you even still have, like, pay gaps with women. I think, like, um, was it last year, a couple of years ago? I lose track of time. But um, it came out that Anthony Anderson was making more than, um, uh, oh, my gosh, Diana Ross's daughter on Blackish. And, you know, it, it surfaced that, you know, even though they were both, you know, the main, main start of the show, he was making significantly more money than her. And that was a huge issue because, you know, he's a man and she's a woman. And so you, you, you hear this and you see this so often where uh, women are not getting the same type of financial credit or praise or, um, or visibility that our male counterparts are getting. And so, you know, with that and with, you know, even with the Me Too moment, I, I think that, like, the biggest thing is that, you know, as women, we, we have to take back our power and we have to speak on these things when they happen, which I know is easier said than done because if you're a victim of, if, you know, if you're a survivor of, you know, abuse or rape, it, it, you know, that's your story to tell should you choose to tell it. But I think that there is power in being able to speak up and, and um, confront your abuser. And I also think that, you know, 
people who are abusing women and abusing the system need to be held accountable, not just by, you know, the survivors, but also by other people who are, are seeing what's happening. You know, we, we all need to hold each other accountable and, and charge each other to elevate and to grow and to do better because people will only do what they're allowed to do. Right, I'm only going to go as far as you let me go. If, if no one's telling me that what I'm doing is wrong, if no one's holding me accountable for my actions, then there, what, what cause do I have to stop? But once we start to set limits and set parameters for people and hold them accountable and start to charge them for their actions, then we will start to see a change as a society once people are held accountable. Yeah, I can definitely see that need for accountability, even on the need for accountability within our education system. Because one of the things that I've observed, and I'd like to hear your take on this as well, is that um, even when we talk about things like sexuality and things of that nature, I don't know that we're necessarily holding people accountable in terms of us actually learning these things at an early age. You mentioned the story of your um, dad, I believe it was, who gave you this kind of education at a very early age. And I remember, and even though they've got multiple kids now and are well into their adult years. I think the oldest might be in their late 40s now or whatever. But I remember that my um, cousins, and there was a multitude of them, I think it was uh, five girls and a boy. Um, and uh, they were, uh, my mom gave them a very famous book called Our Body, Ourselves. My uncle had a fit when he saw that book. And all she was trying to do, because she saw that they were coming of age, so she was trying to give them, like your dad did, a little bit of knowledge. And then in my mind, um, they went back into their family atmosphere and went back to a little bit of being suppressed. And that might be why they have had multiple kids. Not that there's anything wrong with having multiple kids if that's your choice or whatever. But I do sometimes wonder if things might have been different if they had not had that negative reaction when my mom, who's always been a very independent maverick kind of woman, was just trying to basically help them learn about their body and their selves. Because, I mean, that book is a classic book in that regard. So I was just wondering, and even in our education system, I think that I recall, and like I said, I'm in my late 50s, I think I recall a time frame when these kind of things, whether it was in the health classes or whatever, were taught on a regular basis. And I don't know that our current youth are being taught as much just the basics of Mother Nature and society and things of that along those lines. So I was just wondering, do you think that we're doing enough educational-wise in terms of letting folks know about human sexuality and things of that nature, or are we just depending on them to learn about it on the Internet? Because we know that you can find just about anything you want on the Internet. Sometimes you can find more than you want on the Internet. So I was just wondering, do you think that as a society we're doing enough to educate people about basic psychology but also basic sexuality? Um, I, I I always feel like we can do more. I, I feel, especially at a young age, children are like sponges. Um, and I, I can say for myself, I mean, my dad didn't have any boys. I know he wanted boys. But all he had were girls. And so it was, you know, he was a young boy at the time, and so he knew what boys wanted. And so he felt like it was his job to keep us from falling into the traps that maybe he he probably laid when he was younger. And, I, I mean, I didn't have my first child until I was 30 because my dad had already put me up on game regarding, you know, what was out there. And so when boys came to me and said certain things, I was like, man, I've already, I already know this story. You heard this. I'm not, I don't want, you know, I don't have time for what it is that you're, you're trying to say. And when I deal with my nieces and nephews, I talk to them the same way that my dad talked to me. And because of that, they come to me 
for for certain you know questions and insight because they know that I won't sugarcoat things with them, and I also um, you know I won't judge them because I think especially you know when I was growing up, the, the education was don't have sex, right? And and what what do you want to do when someone tells you not to do it? Do it. <laughs> you don't do something that's exactly what you want to do and so that's not education that that you know that those are restrictions and so I think giving someone full education and allowing them to know you know if they're going to have sex you know practice you know safe sex and what that means and what that looks like and and instead of trying to use scare tactics inform them so that they can make informed decisions When, when I mean when all of my nieces and nephews got ready to transition to being intimate, they talked to me first. And, you know, that, that's nothing against their parents or anything, but that just goes to say that because I didn't penalize them or punish them or make them feel small for having natural urges that every single person has, you know, and I think that's what we need to do with kids is, you know, even from a young age, like talk to them about like what what does their what their body needs, what does this look like? You know, these, these are healthy urges that you're having. I mean, when um, when I got pregnant, we had custody of my my nephew, and he was uh, six at the time, and he had all of the questions about you know well, how did you get the baby in your belly? What does that look like? Is it how is the baby going to come out? And we sat we sat down with him and had a very age appropriate discussion about. How babies are how babies are conceived, how what happens, where the baby's going to come from when when auntie goes into labor. You know, you have a penis like your uncle. Auntie has a vagina, like all of these things, and we use appropriate terms so that he understood what it was, and so that that keeps him informed. That keeps him from having to go and seek information elsewhere, so that he's not misled by somebody, and that also prepares him. Um, in the event that, you know, he needs to be aware of his own body so he's able to use appropriate terminology. He's not using code words for, you know, his genitals or somebody else's. He knows exactly what's worth. So he was able to make peace with, with the conversation, you know, and he – I had other people say, oh, well, he's too young to understand that. He's not too young. He he sees, he understands, He he's a growing and functioning individual. And so I think that once we have conversations about – sex with our children the same way we have conversations about everything else, I think that we'll, then we'll start to see more um, insightful responses from young people, and we'll see them be able to make more informed decisions because they're getting the information firsthand and they're getting a, a wealth of information and they're not having to go seek it from their peers or from the media. You know, they're getting it from, from home where it's supposed to come from. No, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I was curious about, and I just want to know your thoughts on this, is the church and the church's role in terms of things of this nature. Because sometimes I feel that the church gives a double standard, and that's just my opinion, but I don't know if you agree or disagree, and I don't know even whether you're a church woman or not. But sometimes I do feel that the church tells the man of society and the man of the church kind of that um, go out and, um, you know, um, spread your love, spread your whatever around and everything, where it tells the women to some degree to be pure as driven stoke. And if you're giving those contradictory messages, you create a contradiction in society. At least that's my opinion. But I was just wondering, do you think that our institutions, and the church is just one of them, we also talked about the school system, but do you think that our churches can do a better job of being 
fair in the way that they present because I do think that sometimes and you, you can even you mentioned uh, the music stars that you gave that example of and even some of our songs give a double-edged meaning of the way that they present for both men and women. So I just wonder what your thoughts are. Am I misreading that and thinking that we're given a double standard to some degree in what we're wanting of the women of society versus what we want of the man in society and the way that pop culture and even religious institutions and educational institutions kind of address these things? But I sometimes feel that we sometimes give of mixed signals and uh, coded messages and double meanings and things of that nature, but you're the professional, so I want to hear your thoughts on that. Um, There definitely is a double standard uh, for men versus women or boys versus girls. There always has been, and there may always will, they may always will be. um, And I'm going to try to tread very lightly because I don't want to offend anybody with my, you know, with my uh, beliefs or my knowledge, but, um, I think that when it comes to doing something against, when when it comes to going against the grain, I think the most effective tactic is fear and shame. If I shame you into saying that if you have sex, then you you know you're a harlot, and the church is going to shun you, or the school is you know going to shame you, or you know, then you're going to get pregnant or you're going to, you know, you're going to have STDs. If I, if I shame you or fear or put fear in you, then I can control you. And I think that's been my, my biggest issue with this um, very rigid thinking about um, sex when it comes to um, the education system or the, um, or institutions in general, just because I think it's, it's more than just that black and white type of thing and um but I but I know that 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 has that is what has been effective for them is fear and shame and so that's what they continue to use is um those two tools because like I said they're they're very effective but they they don't they don't serve anybody because you know we we shouldn't we shouldn't use that when it comes to a, a, a physicality because I mean that's and that's something that I, you know, I, I try to empower my clients is that sex is, it's a physicality, it's a, it's a need that every single person has. Whether you have a, a natural need is another conversation, but sex is a physicality that every single person has. That's how we were all brought here is because two people laid down and had sex. So it had it not been for that, neither one of us would even be here to have the conversation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, no, we don't mind people t- tackling tough issues. That's kind of what we do here on Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. And Dean may jump in at some point or another. He's been the one that is in a very successful and loving marriage and all of that. So I don't know if the Dean is going to feel like jumping in at some point. But in the meantime, I'll just continue the conversation going and all of that. But even along those same lines and everything, I sometimes wonder, and with the therapy work you do, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, about how we sometimes shame even certain things that are used as an enhancement tool. And I know that one of the things you talked about in your writings and everything is definitely the use of oils, but also sometimes there's like various forms. And yes, it can be an addictive habit and you don't want to have the addictive habit of it. But I do think that things like, um, videos or what some people might consider pornography can also be very much useful within relationships and things of that nature. So when you're talking to your clients, do you talk to them about the use of these things? And is it something that is acceptable within it as long as people aren't like doing it 
abusively using it as a substitute 100% for the relationship or using it like, you know, five times a day or whatever, the the more excessive version, whatever excess is to different people. But when you talk to folks, what do you think about using some of these kind of tools, some people might call them ACE, in terms of like trying to build that successful relationship? Absolutely. I I love the idea of doing, you know, like it, whatever is, is pleasurable to both parties because, you know, what what works for one couple is different for another couple. If watching porn is helpful for the couple, I encourage, you know, y'all make an agreement that this is what y'all are going to do. If you want to use toys, if you want to use oils, if you want to use you know, big wall balls or yonis or what have you, whatever it is that you want to use, if that's something that is going to serve the relationship and, and able to fortify healthy intimacy for the two of you, then that's an agreement that, that those two people make. But like intimacy, like I said, is different for every couple. It's not going to look the same, even though, you know, if I'm in a relationship with Bob intimacy will look different than me in relationship with with Evan, you know, because the the chemistry is different. Like I said, the love languages are different, and what another person needs is different. Some men like their prostate stimulation. Some men do not. It's just it's a preferential thing, and it's all about communicating what you like. But I encourage my clients to explore and try to use different tools and, um, like you said, aids, especially if they've been in a relationship for longer periods of time, because all it does is just rekindle that fire that was there, and it just it gives you um, additional ways to explore your partner's body, especially if you've been getting to know each other's bodies for 20, 30 years. It, it doesn't hurt to to implement additional um, aids to help, you know, help bring that spice back into the bedroom. That's always a, uh, you know, a great thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that seems to be something that more people want is that add that spice in life, whatever that spice is that is for them. So I was just wondering, when you're talking to your clients, what are some of the things that have uh, come back to that part of the life? What are some of the things that folks have been that you found shocking that folks did not want to be accepting of? Because I, I think sometimes we're not as accepting of some things that we expect people to be accepting of. So I was just wondering if there are things that you have been startled by and everything because um i'll just give an example of something that i've noticed and um i do a lot of research on the web so i definitely see a lot of things that are going on in the web and i did not realize how big um and i've alluded to it earlier but how big the swinging society is in america or worldwide but apparently it's a very big part of society but i don't know necessarily that everybody is trying to talk about that just like i know for a fact that um even though this what i'm hearing to mention is totally i think in, in u.s law illegal but there apparently is a, quite a few folks that are involved in some form or fashion of polygamy or multiple partners because i've known one or two friends that have even told me they're in um a couple of friends of mine that have told me they're in polygamous relationships and i think in both cases it's the man with two women but there might have been one case where it was a woman with two men don't quote me on that but definitely i've just been surprised at the fact that this even exists in society to the agree to the degree that it exists because i think that at one point in my nativity i was thinking that it wasn't as big as apparently it is so like i said you do a lot of research in this field as that's something that i'm just seeing because i'm looking at the web and i'm seeing that all advertised all over the place or is it as big as i think it is um i i, I think it's 
big is relative compared to the community that you're in. So I have, I mean, I have a uh, a throuple that I work with, so three people who are in a relationship. Um, and I, I think the commonality that you you might see is a man and or or a person who identifies as being a man, and then two women. But I have seen a plethora of struggles. I have seen non-gender conforming individuals. I have seen a, a cis man and um, a transgender woman and, and a cisgender woman. I've seen all types of um, components of a throuple mixed together. And so it, it just, ultimately, the couple is whatever, you know, you want to make of it, as long as the people who are, you know, who love each other and want to spend time together. So I have seen a lot of that. I've also heard a lot of the swinging um, mostly in our older communities. But I also think that um, a lot of these things are coming out now because of social media, and it's also coming out because people aren't putting as much emphasis on family. Because, like, marriage was an institution for survival for women, and it was put in place for procreation. So a man married, you know, a man married a woman so that they can procreate, and the man was the financial provider for the household, and the woman took care of the home and the, and the kids. That we have gotten away from that um, that structure, and we're you know a lot of women are the providers in the household now, and so we don't need that same type of societal setup where I need a husband to survive, and so we're able to do different types of things now and have different types of relationships, and so that's why where you'll see the throuples, and that's where you'll see swinging becoming more popular because people are more more inept to, you know, to share because there's not this need for survival or possession because everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Yeah, because even on those lines, because I know that I've had conversations with friends of mine about marriage and just marriages in general. You definitely said that you um, have a child, and I think that you're married. I can say I know that my partner in crime, Dean, is married. I'm still one of those old uh, bachelors at 58, probably be bachelor for the rest of my life, but who knows what fate and life uh, will dictate and everything. But that being said, from what I understand of the institution of marriage, and this, some people might say that this is a controversial thing to say, but I mean, yes, definitely we had the traditional model of the marriage, meaning, you know, the marriage, the husband and wife, the white picket fence, the whatever the average was, 1.5 kids, 2.3, whatever the average of of the average amount of kids was. But it's my understanding from a societal standpoint that marriage was really about a contract. And a lot of times it was about a business deal. I mean, there was the whole earlier stages of marriage, even I would argue sometimes within the biblical context, was it in the sense of a business deal. I mean, you were having marriage and there was an exchange of uh, dowries and other things that became like a business deal. I mean, we tease people from Asia about arranged marriages, but that was kind of the model of the early society of marriage that is the modern marriage comes out of. And then, of course, there was also marriage for a purpose, meaning that, yes, you had multiple kids and those kids, you were trying to have those multiple kids in order to help you kill the farm because if you live on a big farm and you don't own slavers, if you're not of the ruling class and everything, and you've got like a small farm, you might need a lot of hands in order to um, take care of that farm. So like I said, I know though that there was definitely some intimacy among our forefathers and our ancestors, but I'm sure there was also some intentionality 
to some of what was going on in the sense of, you know, you don't necessarily want, because the cost of kids is expensive, so you don't necessarily want six or seven kids now, whereas back then you might have wanted six or seven kids, even though the costs were probably just as crazy for that time as they are now, but you also had the kids for a purpose. At least that's kind of what I've read in history and kind of my studies of the institution of marriage. But um, if you have a counter to that or if you think that my history is wrong, please let me know. No, I think I think that you're spot on. Um, and I, I think that, um, like you said, over time, the, the contract of marriage has kind of evolved a little bit. Um, and, I mean, sometimes you still have marriages out of necessity and out of survival. Um, but then you also have marriages, you know, based off of, purely emotion, but that's also why we have such a high divorce rate is because the same need for marriage is not there, you know, like the, like it used to be. Yep, I can definitely see that where folks might have that automatic moment of the thrill of uh, the relationship and all of that, but then that even comes back to communications because I sometimes think that even folks that might have gotten married in that whirlwind relationship, maybe there was a baby involved, maybe there wasn't a baby involved, but they had that whirlwind relationship, I sometimes feel that there's not enough communication that goes on on a regular basis. So part of what you do with your company, if I understand correctly, is getting people to communicate with each other throughout the course of their life. So like if you pick them up as a client at 20 and if you were able to keep your business going for another 30 or 40 years, you would probably maintain a conversation with them about that relationship to say between 20 and 60 or between 30 and 70, if I'm understanding the model of what you're talking about, because everybody that talks about relationships talks about the importance of communication. And I don't think that even though we give that a lot of lip service, we actually always know what that means. Cause I mean, communication is vital in any relationship. I don't care whether it's a business relationship or a personal relationship, but I think we sometimes just give it lip service and don't necessarily do it the way that we should. So um, could you talk a little bit about your communication module and your communication model and kind of some of the ways that you try to encourage people to communicate? Because I sometimes, I've seen couples, one of the things that I hate, and we've even talked about this on this show before with another guest, is I hate going to like restaurants. I think many people are going to restaurants now. But you go to a restaurant, you see two people that are plainly on a date, and they're sitting there busy texting others. So that to me is not effective communication because if you're sitting there and you got time to text and social media how the date is going to your best friend or your bestie somewhere else, then you're not really communicating to the person that you're there having the date with. (laughs) That is so true. I I used to hate going to restaurants and watching people sit at the table with each other and be on the phone the whole time. That used to drive me insane. Even with my friends, I hated going out with them and they'll be on the phone. I'm like, well, I could have just stayed at home if he was going to be on the phone the whole time. But um, to, to, to your question, I... When I work with a client, I work with a couple, the first thing that I do before we even get into why they came to me is I figure, we, help, we figure out together what each person's love language is. Because a lot of the time, they're coming to me because they're not having effective communication, and we can't communicate together if, we're, if we are speaking two different languages. So if I don't understand where you're coming from, you don't understand where I'm coming from, we can talk at each other all day, but no one's going to be listening because I can't hear you because I don't know what you're saying. 
And so that's, that is the first thing that we do um, together is to determine what each person's love language is. And so, you know, you have five love languages. You have words of affirmation in that that's when, you know, you're verbalizing something to another person. Then you have physical touch. And then you also have um, receiving gifts. You have quality time, and then you have acts of service. And so we work to identify the love languages so that we can know where that person is coming from when they're communicating to us. And then we also, um, I also encourage my clients when they're communicating, especially in our sessions and outside of them, to use I statements. So when they're communicating to their partner, not to say blaming words like you did or it's your fault, say things like I felt or I feel or you know, I feel hurt or I, I, I feel um, unseen or what have you. So using I statements takes ownership and it, it removes blame. So those are yeah, the things that I do when I send assigned a, a couple clients. And along the same lines, um, I, one of the other things I'm oftentimes fascinated with, and I did give the example of the telephone folks and everything, but also I sometimes wonder about folks that are not good at giving um, nonverbal communications, because to me that's very important, and I sometimes think that people either misread it, they don't interpret it correctly. I've got friends that are in the um, autistic spectrum, and sometimes that can also create some things around uh, nonverbal communications, because you have to understand that they are of a different mindset and they operate in a different kind of mental plane than, say, some of us other folks in society do. But how important is nonverbal communication when you're involved in any sort of relationship, be that the personal relationship, be that the business relationship, be that the relationship between you and your parents or you and your kids, but how important when you're talking to these different clients of all kinds of spectrums of the family relationship, how important is nonverbal communications? I think that um, verbal communic or nonverbal communication plays an essential role in, you know, in being effective in your communication with a person who is able to demonstrate it appropriately. Like you said, there are people or individuals who may not be able to effectively use nonverbal communication. The example you gave was, you know, people who might be on the spectrum, you know, sometimes their verbal, their nonverbal communication does not um, sync up with their verbal expressions. And, you know, that happens, but there are other ways that they're able to communicate. And so it, it always has to do with knowing your audience and considering you know, who you're talking to when you're um, looking at these nonverbal cues. And, um, you know, my, my thing is I always ask for clarity. If I see a nonverbal expression that might mean something to me, I ask for clarification. I see that you're doing this. Is this what you mean? Is this what you're trying to communicate by this? So that person can let me know if I'm in the ballpark for what they're communicating nonverbally or if I'm completely off base. Because, you know, and they'll tell you, you know, either verbally or with their body, if what you're seeing is actually what they're trying to communicate. Yep. And I wish that some people would teach uh, communication skills, and this might even be a, like a relationship skill thing and everything, because on the show we do like to give hard times to certain folks that deserve a hard time. So, like I said, we don't mind getting controversial and things of that nature. So I'm going to personally recommend that you go to the White House and that you teach that person that's currently at 1600 how to use communication skills effectively, because I'm sorry, Twitter is not an effective communications tool and some of the other crazy things that he does in terms of uh, being 
coached and other things. Because I'm assuming that he probably has a coach because, I mean, he's in politics. So I, and he was supposedly a great business owner, even though I've heard from several sources that he wasn't all that great of a business owner and everything. But I'm thinking he's definitely got some coaches in his life and everything. But I don't think that they're teaching him the kind of skills that you would be teaching him. So I'm thinking that you would be a better coach. So maybe he needs your help if you want to give it to him. But personally, I wouldn't want to give it to him because he's not my favorite person. But if you want to give it to him, I think that he could use your help. Yeah, I don't have a personal interest in assisting him at this time. However, somebody needs to help him. Not necessarily me, but somebody. <laughs> so he needs some help with one form or another because he's definitely got some communication issues going on, and we don't necessarily understand what those communication issues are. If you were to theorize, because I've asked this of other people in the science field, so if you were to theorize, what do you think is going on with that person currently holding uh, 1600 from a mental health and from a um, emotional standpoint. So this is your chance to play doctor with the person in 1600. So, I mean, you are a doctor and are somebody involved in the psychology field, but we, we're going to have you do your client work right now on that person. So what do you think is going on? Um, I have not given much thought to him. I try not to allow him to occupy my mental capacity, um, but if I, if I had to say anything, I, I would absolutely say narcissistic personality disorder. He, he just, he has a very enlarged um, vision of himself and he is, he, he operates solely off of, you know, his, his own delusions of grandeur and his own uh, perceptions of um, importance in the lives of other people. And so I I think that would go without saying it's narcissistic personality. I'm sure that there are some other things there, but that's the most um, pertinent to me is, is his, his ability to make everything about himself. Nope. Definitely some narcissism, definitely some delusional grandeur. Hey, Dean, I think that you're still on the call with us and everything. So I think that that becomes the second person that has told us that. So we need to get clips of this, take them off of the show, and then mail them to D.C. We'll probably get in trouble for it, but I think that's something we need to do. Because I think that's either the second or the third person in the last several weeks that has told us something along those lines. And these were all experts in the field. So, like I said, we need to go back to our tapes, you know, clip off this part and mail it to them. So what do you think about that? Are you gay for that? <laughs> you know what? I don't mind. I will cut it. I will ship it. Tell me where I need to send it to. <laughs> and we will get it there, you know? We will get it there to him and everything. Um, like I said, I've certainly been enjoying this conversation. We've learned a lot and everything. We've still got a, about uh, 15 more minutes or so to go and everything. But that being said, um, I'm going to turn it over to you, Dean. I don't know if you've got any questions for our lovely therapist and everything. And at some point, I do want her to tell folks how they can reach her there in Atlanta. Because who knows? We've had all kinds of folks, and we do have our lovely network. So she may be getting some calls of new clients. But before we get to that, which will be closer to the end, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about your own life and things that you want to share, because you've been in a very loving relationship for a number of years. I forgot how long you told me, but you've had, uh, you and your lovely wife have been together. Y'all are in business together. Y'all have done a number of things. 19 years we've been together. 17 of those years we were, we've been legally married and counting. So, you know, it it takes, it takes work. You know, some people think, oh, I'm married. And it's nice to show off your ring. It's nice to have this huge wedding and 
have everybody there and everybody smiling and happy. Then you go home. And once you go home, that's when the marriage begins, you know, and you have to work at it every single day. Some days you're not going to agree on everything, but as the Beatitudes say, you know, never go to bed angry. So make that situation right before you go to sleep because there have been some unfortunate situations where people have gone to sleep angry, two people go to sleep, one person wakes up. Then what do you do? You know, so you, and for a lot of times, people will, um, once they've gotten, quote, unquote, the prize, then they just stop doing everything. It's like, I got you now, so we're good, but you're not good. You know, you're going to have to date every day. The same things you did to get that woman or to get that man is the same things you need to do to keep that woman or to keep that man. Trust. Honesty, communication, humor, the ability to laugh at yourself, the ability to take wise counsel and not get upset. And when you're able to learn to do all of those things, then you are able to really get along with a person who now comes in tune with you and they can tell when you're feeling a certain way because the two have now become one, you know, and it's, it's weird. I don't really know how to put it into uh, words, but, you know, like if I'm feeling a certain way, my wife can tell. She's like, you're not feeling too good today, are you? I'm like, nope, I'm not. But let's, you know, let's keep going, and I'll probably feel better a little bit later on. I'm going to go and take a nap, and then when I get up, you know, we'll – and we do little things. It's the little things that count. You know, you don't have to go out here and buy the world. But you can show your significant other, your spouse or what have you, that world when you spend that time with them. Like um, like you said, the, the love languages, people average about how many of those? They have, what, two to three of those? Adila? I'm sorry. People, yeah, he was asking about, about the love languages. I'm sorry. He was asking about love languages. So he was asking you that people have how many of those? I think you were saying daily, uh, Dean. So is it two to three a day? Well, I think is one of the questions that he was asking you. Two to three, period. I mean, I'm just saying overall. Oh. oh, well, I think that, like you said, there's a combination of love languages, but I think that we, ha- we each have, like, one primary love language. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know it's not gifts for me. <laughs> you know, that that's just not not me, you know, but at the same time we we do use a combination of all of those to, you know, when you get into a relationship and when you decide to take it to the level where you stand before God and before man and say, you know what, this is a person for me. You know, it's not just the one day thing. It's every day. So now Character is what you do when people are not watching, you know, and you got to be able to have fun with your mate and also give them space so that, you know, you're not, you know, some spouses may be or boyfriends or whatever. Where are you going? What you doing? I'm going with you. And then after a while, that person looks at you and says, I'm sick of you because every time my only place I can get away from you is work. 
And even then, you're still calling me like, please leave me alone. Let me go in the bathroom and hide from you all weekend. You know, some get like that. But you got to be able to trust your mate and, and give them space and, and also room to grow and be their biggest cheerleader. And in turn, they will be yours. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was just wondering if you could talk to us, Adila, about the whole concept of humor, because he definitely mentions that and how important humor is. And I do think that whether it's a dating relationship, whether that's in the, you're in those courtship kind of phases, or whether you're in a marriage, that that is something that is oftentimes not used or not paid that much attention to. And then also that whole concept of understanding your emotions and not going to bed angry and things of that nature. So that's to the points that Dean brought up, but I'd like to hear your reflections on both humor and the idea of not going to bed angry. Cause I do think that sometimes, you know, you're sitting there fuming over whatever was said and all that's going to do is add to it. Whenever you do wake up, if you go to bed angry and don't settle it before you go to sleep. So I just wanted you to elaborate on both of those. Right. So um, as far as humor, I think, you know, I think it's that's an individual quality. You know, I personally love humor in my relationship. That's a huge basis for me, but I know some women who that's not a huge component for them is, is humor. They want some, somebody who, you know, has stability or is able to support them. They're not necessarily concerned with someone who can make them laugh. So that, you know, I think that's an individual basis, but, you know, we laugh all the time in my relationship, but that's also because I'm, I'm just a very goofy individual and my husband's very goofy and we come from, you know, very lighthearted families. And so that was something that was important for me. Um, so I, I, th- I think, like I said, that's very a personalized, um, whether or not that, you know, if that's something that you want or what have you. And you, the other part that you mentioned in addition to humor was what now? Anger and not going to bed angry. Anger. That's one of the things that Dean talked about. See, that I have heard don't go to bed angry. And I think that that works to, to an extent. And I think that there is a time and a place for everything because at some point, you know, sometimes we have to walk away from a conversation and come back. Now, you know, I can still, because I'm going to love you always, right? But if I'm if I'm still needing to process something that we said in the conversation or, you know, it's something that we need to revisit at a later time, I think it's okay to put something on pause. And so I think when people think, when people hear, don't go to bed angry, they think, okay, this needs to be resolved before we go to sleep. And that's not always the case. Hello? Yeah, you were saying that wasn't always the case. That was like our 10-minute mark and everything. But we still got time to get that and to also find out how folks can reach you. So finish that thought that you were sharing because that was like our 10-minute little warning that we oh, okay. have for the show. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, I'm like that, that's not always the case because sometimes, you know, we need to take, take a step back so that we can come closer together. And so um, I think that just go, not going to bed angry can sometimes be taken out of context because you can, you know, like I said, come back to it at a later time once you've been able to get a level head and once you've, you know, been able to sleep on it, then you can come back and come to, come from a more loving and receptive place. 
Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Just out of curiosity, you know, I just I actually was on another one of my shows that I do, and I was having a friend of mine that shared his experience of how he got to his significant other. I know Dean has shared how they met, but I was just wondering how what was the magic bullet moment for you and your significant other? So, what? How did you meet your husband? I guess is the question I'm asking. Um, we actually met on a dating website. Okay, so we you were on one of those folks website. that have had success. So you're one of those people that have had success on dating websites. I've seen more and more people that are having success on those websites, me, they, eHarmony, Tinder, whatever the different ones that are out there and everything. So you actually did find that it worked. Um, and I'm assuming that part of it was because as what I'm thinking of you and what I'm hearing from you from our conversation now is that you're very forthright. And I'm imagining he was very forthright. So unlike some people on some dating sites, there was probably not a lot of illusion because I do know that sometimes on those dating sites, people can create whole personas that ain't them. Yes. <laughs> he he was a very forthcoming and straight shooter. And I, I loved that, you know, from the beginning. And he kind of, he just kind of came out the gate you know, with all of his cards on the table, which I really appreciated. He was very transparent and made me feel comfortable to be transparent as well. So here we are. And how long have y'all been married? Like I said, Dean shared how long he's been with his wife. They're going to go on 20 years. So how long have you and your other half been together? Yes, we aspire to be together as long as Dean and his wife have been together. We have been together now for um, almost six years. Well, six years is a lot of bad time frames. So they've no, got two, six all. years. To, and um, how important is transparency? Because just out of curiosity, we mentioned that term out here, talked of oftentimes in relationships, but I do think that sometimes people are very non-transparent. So just in terms of developing a relationship, whatever that relationship is, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's that, getting a significant other, maybe it's just getting a new friend, but how important in relationships do you find transparency to be? I find um, a level of, transparency to be very important because if I can't if I can't take my mask off with my partner then who can I take my mask off with and I need I need to be able to be completely naked around you and and vice versa and if and if we don't have that level of vulnerability then I don't think that you know there's longevity and health in our relationship so we need to be able to be like you said transparent with one another, and I also encourage my clients to, you know, to think about that with their relationship. Is this somebody that you feel comfortable being transparent around? Are they going to judge you um, or support you if you're completely naked with them? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see that and everything. Um, as we're winding down and everything, could you tell people how they can reach you? Are you primarily just dealing with clients in Atlanta? Are you uh, national? Are you global? We are a uh, international podcast because we do have listeners all over the world, including some in various countries around the world. But um, right now, where is your client base, and are you open to having conversations, be that well, they're overseas, they're probably going to be virtual, but are you open to having virtual clients, and are you open to having relationships in terms of business relationships outside of the Atlanta area? So just tell us a little bit about your model and also how folks can reach you. Absolutely. So right now, all of my services are remote, um, just, you know, due to the current time. And um, I do offer services globally. I have clients in South Africa, in Germany, in the UK. I have clients here in the U.S. Um, So I do um, services online, um, virtually. And um, I can be found on all the social media platforms. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Dr. D-O-C-T-A, Dr. D-E-E, Effect, A-F-F-E-C-T. 
on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, Instagram, and I'm also on LinkedIn, um, Adila Dockety Whitaker, and I'm also on my website, www.thedockedeffect.org. So that is where you can find me, and I am always open to, um, you know, hearing from prospective clients as well as fortifying healthy business relationships. I'm always open to, you know, a conversation and answering any questions and being um, of assistance for anybody who's out there that, you know, wants a conversation. Sounds great. And if you could just really quickly, and I know, like I said, the time is running out and everything, but if somebody was to say, what is the Dr. D effect? What is the Dr. D effect? Because, like I said, if, if you use that terminology, so it's got to have some sort of meaning within it. So, if somebody was to ask you, "What is the Dr. D effect?" What would be your answer? The Dr. D effect is a mindset of empowerment. It is um, making an agreement with yourself to love all of who you are and define yourself to the world so that you can be unstoppable as you stand in your purpose and let your inner light shine and choose you every single day above all else. Wow. That sounds like a very powerful effect that more of us need to have, no matter whether our name is Dr. D or not. So it definitely sounds like a great kind of thing that we should have on a regular basis. Um, that being said, and like I said, we've got about another two or three minutes to go. One of the things we do when we wrap up this show is we give people to give some sort of insight that they would like to share with the world. So if there's some sort of insight that you would like to share at this particular time, and it can be either revolving around what we talked about, whether that be um, – human sexuality or around uh, business growth or around transformation or just like life in general. It can be about anything. This is your time to give us a reflective statement, and then me and Dean will talk about some of the other shows we've got and some of the things that are going on with our network and everything. But as we wind down and as folks now know how to reach you, this is a chance for you to be reflective in any way you feel like being reflective. Um, my reflective statement um, that I want to leave you guys with is just to, you know, continue to grow and continue to pour in to yourself and take care of yourself. You know, I think especially right now we're all, you know, doing the best that we can to try to stay alert and stay aware of everything that's going on. So just continue to take care of yourself so that you can take care of those around you and that you can continue to aspire to be the best version of yourself for the next day. Just do, you know, do the best that you can and everything else will be all right. Fall into place. Sounds like some great advice, and we definitely appreciate you joining us here on the show and definitely offering those kinds of great insights, and hopefully we will be seeing more folks coming to you and uh, even increasing your uh, client base and things of that nature. So that's one of the things that I'm wishing for you is that uh, this helps you continue to grow your business and that uh, you continue to get more clients both there in Atlanta as well as throughout the country of the United States as well as globally. So that's kind of what I'm projecting is that Folks have learned a lot about you, learned a lot about some of your life thoughts and philosophies and things of that nature, and hopefully they found a kindred spirit and somebody that they can go ahead and use in terms of being able to uh, you help them in developing their lives and whatever those various aspects are. So definitely want to thank you for uh, joining us here on the show. You were a great guest and definitely enjoyed having you. And part of the family is that once you come on once, you're always welcome back. So I think that I'm fair enough in saying, and I think the Dean would agree, we've definitely enjoyed the conversation. It's covered a lot of different topics, but do know that any Monday night that you feel like mm -hmm. popping in, you're always welcome to come back and to share this 
knowledge that you have gathered and continue to gather as a trained professional with us. So definitely anytime that you feel like popping in and joining in our conversation, know that you're always welcome to do that on any Monday between 7 and 9, minus a few holidays, because there are a few holidays where me and Dean try to honor some of those Monday holidays and disappear. But I don't think there's any of those coming up till maybe Labor Day, um, since we usually take off that Monday, but no, no other ones other than that for a while. So definitely do know that you are always welcome to join us in the, these conversations. So, Dean, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, one of our other guests in a little bit, but if you want to real quickly share with folks some of the networks that they can find us on and some of the other shows that we've got on our network or some of the things that we've got going on, including having our friend Roberta now airing her show on our network as well. But if you would just share a little bit about that, and then I'll come back and tell you a little bit about our next guest next week, and we're talking to some other folks as well. But if you just want to share that, and then we'll get ready to wrap everything up. All right. Give me about 10 seconds because you know how our system does, and it does some things a little backwards. But now that we've gotten past that mark so easily, um, <laughs> it's Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, y'all. Monday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio. Don't forget to check out the replay tomorrow afternoon at 2 p.m., and Wednesday afternoon at 2 p.m. on the Skyhawk Radio Network based out of North Carolina. And if you missed those, we have more replays on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcast, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, CastBox, Pod follow and right here at Blog Talk Radio. 75 countries, all 50 states, we keep moving, grooving, and shaking. We want to welcome the Virginia Interfaith Live Podcast to the Level Podcast Network. It's a total of about 17 shows, so keep it locked right here. BlogTalkRadio.com backslash squared 807. And, um, Get your feel. We got what you need. Comedy, motivation, medicine, cooking. We got everything. So, you know, I'm not going to name all the shows, but keep it locked to us and find out um, what we're playing. We have something going on all week. So, like I said, lock it on in. And as I always say, when you walk outside your front door, it's showtime in the world is your stage. Just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal. With that being said, it's the six-man thing, Geronimo. I'm out. Y'all have an outstanding week. We see y'all in seven days. And just one other really quick thing and everything, because I'm about to be out as well, but I just got a lovely email from Dr. Adela, Dr. D. Whitaker, who was just our guest a minute ago. She wanted to thank us for the amazing opportunity to be on the show and the riveting discussions. And she definitely welcomes the opportunity to come back anytime that we would like her to be on. And she was wishing both us and our listeners a blessed evening. So definitely that was a great automatic response and that came to me almost as soon as she got off the air with us so definitely she was on top of that in terms of being involved in the communications and sharing that with me almost instantaneously you know this whole thing about diversity and um, business consulting and all of that is very important in this new age that we're living in and everything and unfortunately 
some of these folks are some very powerful women that are also involved in that. And sometimes they also are being advocates around domestic violence, as we heard that Adela is, and as we heard that others are as well. So sexual assault is something that unfortunately is becoming too prevalent in our society and something we need to work on and everything. That being said, we might have some other guests, but one of our primary guests will be Chima Boyd Keys, and she will be coming at us from this area around Raleigh-Durham, but she is a motivational speaker. She does deal with diversity, so there will be some crossover in some of the discussion. She's not as much into some of the things around uh, human sexuality and things of that nature, but some of the other things that we talked about with Adela is things that she is part of, so we will see some synergy in some of the conversation, and like I said, we will be having some other guests as well, but you know, all of these are important things that we have to deal with because as we all know, as we continue to grow as individuals, we need to grow on all the components of our life, which is our mental, our physical, our emotional, and I would even argue our spiritual. So those are definitely important parts of our life, and it's all about us providing great content. It helps us uh, show the really diverse world that we have and try to even help in our own unique way with unifying the world because part of unifying the world is sharing some very positive messages. I know that I'm all about positivity. I know that Dean is about positivity. And most every guest that we have is about positivity as well. So with all the negativity that's going on in the world, we want to shed some positivity on what's happening as well. Yes, we might give some cracks and some hard times to those that deserve it, but we also want to help people develop into a more positive light and things of that nature. So don't get it twisted. We will call out folks when they need to be called out. But at the same time, we want to share some very positive messages. And I think we've been doing that in a wonderful way for about the last, aren't we getting ready to come up on an anniversary, Dean? Isn't that coming up around the very near future um, that we're coming up on an anniversary? We passed it, bro. Since the show has been Straight Talk with Dana Mark, August 7th was two years for the new show. Um, in October, we're going to come up on six years. That's what I meant. I thought that the bigger version, uh, so we've got two years of Straight Talk with Dean and Mark and six years of doing podcasting with my partner in crime, uh, Dean, in one form or fashion or another. And I thought that was coming up in either September or October. So we're coming up on another anniversary, but definitely uh, one of the things that I know we're doing is creating some very positive outlets and some very positive messages. So that being said, just join us on the network, the Next Level Network, because I would say that all of our partners in crime, and I'm not going to try to name them either, but all of our partners in crime <laughs> are one about calling out those that need to be called out, because we got some folks that will call you out harshly, because I'm not going to name who I'm thinking about, but I know that one of them has a similar initial to me in terms of their first letter, and she don't play. I'll just put it that way. She don't play, but uh, she, but we agree with just about everything she says, so she cannot play right. and still be totally truthful and everything, but definitely we've got some great content, and we're going to continue to provide this great content both on this show as well as on the rest of the network. But, yeah, we got some folks that don't play. So, uh, like I said, that one has got the uh, similar initials as me and as many letters as me in her first name, even though doesn't rhyme with mine or anything else. That's the only commonality we've got is that she's got four letters in her first name. I've got four letters in my first name, and we both begin with the M. Do your research. Well, You'll figure out what I'm talking about. But, <laughs> but yeah, you will see that she don't play. So do your research, and you will see that she does not play whatsoever. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that, man. Nothing at all. Nothing wrong at all, and we like that kind of dialogue. We're going to continue trying to have this dialogue on a regular basis. 
I've got to send some information to Dean because, like I said, at the beginning of this show, we had some great guests on the podcast that I do on Monday afternoon, the streaming version. So I'm going to send uh, Dean the audio version of that, and that will be placed on the network as well. So you might wind up learning about everything from fantasy football to e-commerce to uh, what's going on in England and how the English folks feel about the monarchy. We heard from one perspective of that, and we're going to hear another perspective. And I think that you'll find out that a lot of folks still have respect for the royal queen and things of that nature. But definitely, it'll be interesting to hear the perspective from a white male as opposed to the uh, sister that we had the perspective of last week. But definitely, you're going to learn a lot because we are definitely about making folks learn uh, well not making because you can't make folks do anything but definitely right. providing the tools for folks to learn a lot if they want to learn we're going to provide the information we're going to provide the platforms for people to tell you their passions and the things that they care about and then it's up to you as to whether you want to intake that knowledge and intake that kind of background that they are providing but i know whether it's me or what is my partner in crime on this dean we are always out there trying to find some amazing guests that being said and it's the last note that i'm gonna give to folks as we wrap up totally if you've got a guest that you want to be on the show or if you've got folks that you think would be great guests don't hesitate to reach us you can reach us on our platforms be that the blog talk radio um platform be that our facebook page be that and actually we got a couple of facebook pages or be that my personal email bluesradio at gmail.com but you've heard the conversation over two years now you've heard the conversations in the other version over a almost six year period so you've got an idea yeah. of some of the folks that we like to be engaged with and kind of the kind of conversations that we like to have as i like to say we love to talk to creatives entrepreneurs activists educators and there are a few other categories as well but those are definitely four categories that we are always glad to have conversations with so if you know people in that range of those areas or just any area they could be business owners because we've had business owners also don't hesitate to reach us in the different ways that i've said including my email bluesradio at gmail.com because always ready to have some great guests don't want them just coming from north carolina new jersey atlanta or the united states we are open to the entire globe so if you know somebody in south africa that wants to share their story bring them on Indeed. Yes, indeed. And on that note, as I like to say all the time, peace, and we'll catch you later. So definitely looking forward to more great conversations next week and in the weeks ahead. So that being said, I'm here to sign on off. I think Dean's here to sign off as well. And then we'll just call it a day and come back on next week. All right. Peace.